Greetings in Jesus' name. I love thy kingdom, Lord. The house of thine abode. He dwells in his people, his scattered people. And if Christ dwells amongst his gathered people, we should love it too. Do welcome visitors. I, uh, good to see some of you here that haven't been here for a while. And uh, glad you could come and join us this morning. As we go through forward in the last chapter of the book of Ruth... I think the message this morning will be a little more reflective than it is sometimes, and some of you will understand maybe why that's so, and maybe I'll explain more later. But um, we're going to look at the fourth chapter of Ruth, and we're going to look at Ruth's happy ending, which is the title of the message. Before we do that, let's just pause for prayer. Lord, you alone are God. You alone rule the heavens. You rule, the, you rule the kings, Lord, and Lord, you are the ultimate ruler of all the earth. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we are amazed, Lord, again, how you rule, how you, the history has moved forward and you are in charge of it, and yet how you interact with people in real time. Just thank for giving us a glimpse of how you work and pray, Lord, you would work in our lives. Lord, pray that there could be also, yes, Lord, happy endings in our lives here also. So, Lord, we look to you this morning to instruct us, instruct our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, you can turn to Ruth chapter 4. We'll read it a little later. There are many stories in the world. Some stories have happy endings and some stories have tragic endings. Of course, we can write off all those fairy tales in which you have characters which they face difficulties and they need to overcome obstacles and they have problems. But they always overcome them and they end with this common phrase and they lived happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. <laughs> it's fantasy. It... um it's depicting life as both the writer and the reader would want it to be. The good people win, the bad people get their just due, and things work out just the way it's supposed to. That's a fairy tale. Although it is true, in the end, God will cause it to be that way. But we know not all stories end that way in real life or in literature, at least not in this life. I think of the story of Eli, the priest, 
the main mentor for Samuel, the prophet. Eli was a priest. He had an important position. But because of disobedience and neglect, his story ended not happily ever after. But it ended with tragedy and death for his family ever after. How about Samson? We heard a little bit about Samson this morning, didn't we? It's true, he had an end-of-life vengeance, but his life was one of tragedy. We can see him going after uh, Delilah. You see him going after her. And we could, if we could shout across the millennia and say, Samson, don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know what's going to happen? And we wish we could shout to him. But even as we want to shout to him across millennia, we can't shout that same message across the table or across the room. And some stories don't end as well. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And his life ended in tragedy. He apparently thought he knew better than God. So he ignored the warnings and the safeguards God put in his life. And he did exactly what God told him not to do. And exactly what God said would happen, happened. He married those heathen women. And he forsook God in those later years. But Ruth is an opposite story. That's the story this morning, is Ruth. This story begins with hard times, and it begins with disobedience, and it begins with tragedy. But there was a time, there was a turn in Ruth's life and Naomi. And... There was a turn back to God and back to his people. There was a clear declaration of commitment and loyalty to Naomi and to her God. And then there was a faithful walking out of that original commitment. And it was happened in difficult and uncertain times. There was no understanding how it was going to end out. But the commitment was there, and the, and the walking out and faithfulness was there. And uh, in time, the rewards become. So the last message we tracked through chapter 3, which Ruth proposed to Boaz in a marriage in a most unconventional way. In a barn, in the middle of the night, or a threshing floor, whatever that was, <laughs> But we also looked last time at the context of the law that was given to Israel. We looked at at it in the context of the law that had been given to Israel about 200 years before. And that was that Naomi and Ruth had no 
male descendants and no husbands. And we noted there were two emphasis in Israel, family, land, and family lines. All the land belonged to God. It was the promised land. It was the land that God had promised to Abraham that he was going to give to Abraham's descendants. And then, in time, they came and they possessed it. And God divided the land up to the different tribes, and then the tribes divided the land up in different families and clans and so on. And the land was perpetuated to their heirs along family lines. And God's law made provision so that it would stay that way. If anyone needed to sell their family land because of poverty, whoever bought it did not own it. He just owned the use of it. And a relative or the person who bought it back could buy it back by law anytime he would have wanted to or was able to. And of course, then we had the other one. If a man died and left a childless widow, a brother was to marry that widow, and the firstborn would be the heir to the dead husband's name and land. So that is what Ruth proposed to Boaz for. He calls her daughter. Boaz calls Ruth a daughter because much likely she is much, he is much older than her. If Ruth would have married someone else into another family line, not a relative, she would have forsaken Naomi and Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, and that line, that family line and that land would have been lost to the family. But Ruth is walking faithfully in her commitment that she had made to Naomi years, uh, not years, but back before when she was still back in Moab, when she said, where thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. And that was the commitment that Ruth had made back in Moab, and she was walking it out. Well, Boaz responds very positively to Ruth's proposal. He said, I will do it. What you ask me to do, I'll do it. But there is one problem. There is a closer relative. He is in line to the property and to you before I am. And though both Ruth and Boaz seem to desire each other, that was the implication here. Boaz was a man of principle. He would not violate someone else's right, even if his feelings strongly pulled him a different direction. So the matter of the other kinsman redeemer must be settled first before anything else can go forward. And so the last chapter ended with Naomi saying to Ruth, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he hath finished the thing this day. We did our part, Ruth. Now it's time to sit tight and wait.
Naomi is now certain Ruth is going to get married. Her widowhood is going to end today. But she doesn't know to whom. And you could imagine the suspense may have been maybe just a little bit intense. Okay, Ruth chapter 4. Let's read the first uh, five verses or so. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come out again, is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which our brother Elimelech's, which was our brother Elimelech's. Excuse me. And I thought it to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. In the last chapter we've seen, well, the last several chapters we've seen that with the busy days of barley harvest, then with the busy days of wheat harvest, now is the busy days of winnowing out the grain. Probably not quite as busy, but just yesterday, the workmen in the village were busy with their work. They were separating the grain from their chaff. So this is a normal work day in Bethlehem. People get up, the sun is rising, the birds are singing, the dew is on the grass. It's a normal day in Bethlehem. Families are getting out of their houses and beginning a normal routine as usual. But Boaz has a specific job today. Today is the day of redemption for Ruth. Think with me a little bit. The events of this day are going to have enormous ramifications. 3,300 years ago, about, this happened. One day in history, in a little village on the other side of the world. Without this day in history, there would not have been a King David. There would have been a sweet psalmist of Israel. There would have been no 23rd Psalms and its comfort and many other psalms. There would have been no David and Goliath victory or story. And theoretically, there wouldn't have been any temple in Jerusalem. And no Solomon and no Proverbs. It was just a nice spring morning, late, late spring, early summer morning like any other day. Nothing unusual, nothing different, just normal life. 
But let us not be deceived in normal life. The events and decisions of our days have long-term consequences. Not every event and not every day is completely life-changing. We understand that. They're not equally influential, but some are. And the culmination of our decisions and our days are what form our life and the life after us. See, we all come to forks in the road. We are all faced with decisions, choices. And like I said, we often base our big choices on, or sometimes our choices just become a culmination of little choices that we make, and they become a big choice. A culmination of the values we have lived beforehand. I know of one story, uh, one a true event that I understand that happened to one man. I think he was a, a businessman. He was a, ch- a man that in childhood had a, a character trait. He had a bad habit that he did not over, that he did not correct. And I don't know what all the reasons were, but his habit was when he made a mistake, or when he faced some kind of failure in his life, he would not, he would avoid it. He would avoid honestly dealing with a failure in his life. And that became a pattern of his life. And I am sure it made many difficult times for him in relationships. But then there was one event. He was driving home from work on a winding road. And for some reason or another, there was a child on the road and he hit the child. And he stopped. He looked, the child was unconscious, but still breathing. And he was horrified. You know, it was just a terrified. And in that state of heightened emotions, he went to default mode. Avoid it. And he got in his car and he left. He drove around the child and he left. Later on the news, he heard, he learns that a car came down this road and hit a child that was laying on the road and killed it. And it was determined that the child had been hit before by a hit-and-run driver. And it was believed that the child was not critically injured in the first accident, but because it was left on the road, it was killed by the second driver who did stop. And so the search was on for that first driver. He wasn't able to live with it, and he turned himself in. And what could have been an injury to a child, a tragedy, turned out to be a death and a long prison sentence for him because of a negative character trait that was allowed to go on and not correct it. What you and I do today in our heart, in our actions, in our words, and in our attitudes will have an effect for generations to come if the Lord tarries. Sometimes one decision or one action will have an effect 
But most of the time, it's a culmination of our decisions. If the Lord tarries, people will be in heaven or will be in hell because of your actions today. So, it was a normal morning for Boaz. Well, it was a normal morning in Bethlehem, but not a normal morning for Boaz. So, after the night, after that night on the threshing floor, he goes to the city gate. Now, the gate is, I I know you probably have different opinions what the gate of the city gate is, but it's like, an area at the city, at the village or the gate where um, commerce or um, legal things are determined. Sometimes there's a market there. It was a collecting place for a city. And uh, he goes up there. Actually, uh, the first reference that we have of the gate is when two, the two angels left Abraham and they go to Sodom to go to Lot. And Lot is sitting in the city gate. Because he's one of the important men of the city. So uh, that's where the first time we heard about the city gate. So Boaz goes to the gate and he sits down and he waits. And sure enough, here comes this kinsman redeemer. Walking by, probably just intending to go on to his day. So Boaz calls out to him. Uh, it's old English. Ho, such a one. He doesn't call him Fred or Billy. He just says, hey, so-and-so. And I want to mention this. There are many characters mentioned in this story. There's many names. In fact, you have Naomi and you have her husband, Elimelech, and you have their two sons, Chilion and Malan, and you have other people named in here. Here is a character that is a, a very critical character, but we don't have his name. He's an unnamed person. So he comes and he sits down. Sits down. Boaz then calls ten elders and he tells them to sit down. And by now, clearly, something's going on here. After everything is in place, he gets right to it. Boaz does. He says, okay, you know Naomi who came back from Moab? She is selling or she has sold the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So he's talking to this this kinsman redeemer. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line. There's a little bit of disagreement whether Naomi is selling the land now or whether it had been sold in the past because of their poverty. But it doesn't really matter because Naomi is the heir to this land through her husband Elimelech. And as we saw in the last message, you could not permanently sell land in Israel. The land was passed by law along family lines. In the case of the extreme poverty, the owners could sell the land, but the understood conditions were, like I had said before, if an owner or close relative wanted to buy it back, they could buy it back at any time. And in the year of Jubilee, all the land reverted back to the original family. But Naomi was old. 
she had no children, and she wasn't going to have any children. So Elimelech's family line is going to die out. The land would now go to a close relative. All the relative, the redeemer would have to do is buy the land, and it becomes his own. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Uh, you can expand your operation. You've got a bigger her- inheritance to send to your children. You have more income because you have more land. Not even Jubilee will take it out of your procession once you get that land with no, inherit- no, uh, no heir to it. So you can see this opportunist nature of this man coming out. He say, yes, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Later in the chapter, it mentions about a crowd that had gathered around to observe this unscheduled event at the city gate. And we might ask, were Naomi and Ruth in that crowd? We could think about that. And Ruth could have heard this man say, I'll buy it. And she could have, she knew what that meant. That means she goes with the land. And she could have said, oh no, Boaz, not him, Boaz is a godly man. Boaz is kind. Boaz is generous. He's loving. Boaz is principled and strong. But this man? Oh no. But he did say, I'll take it. And I guess that settles it. But it seems that Boaz knew what he was doing. He knew he wanted to redeem it. He wanted to redeem Ruth. But he needed this other man to somehow voluntarily give up his right of redemption. So um, so he holds back some information until now. So verse 5, after Boaz, then said Boaz in verse 5, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Whoa, (laughs) this is not what I was expecting. Naomi is old. She can't have any children, but Ruth, she can have children. I'm going to lose. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right for thyself, for I cannot redeem it. I will not redeem it, he said. It will spoil my life. Maybe he was opposed to spending his own money, his own children's inheritance money for this land and then have it go to someone else. We're not completely sure what all his reasons were, but he was clearly not going to commit to this. The land under my terms, yes. The land under your terms, no. 
And I like to think, what was this man like? What was the character of this man? Is he the character of anyone in this room? I like to think, I liken him as a someone who wants to be a Christian because of the benefits that he or she can get out of it. Well, one of the first benefits you get out of being a Christian is you go to heaven and you don't go to hell. That's a pretty good benefit. I'll go for that. Sure. I don't want to go to that nasty hell. I'll go, yeah, yeah, I'll be a Christian. And maybe being a Christian means God will bless you here and now. You can pray and God will heal you. He will give you money. You can escape some of the wretchedness of the addictions of life and so on because you are a Christian. God will bless you. Some people can accept a God who is a God of acceptance and care and grace. They can embrace a God who loves unconditionally and does not require repentance, does not require obedience, does not judge sin, does not make men feel guilty for what they do. They love to worship a God who is non-judgmental, God who wants people to do their own thing and to be happy. But are there conditions attached to being a Christian? You mean there are responsibilities? You mean there's sacrifice? You mean there's loss? You mean I can't keep on doing what my own heart tells me to do? In that case, I'm not interested. I like my life the way it is now. Thank you. You take it. You take your right of redemption. You take your Christian life. I don't want it. And like Esau, this man despised his right to the redemption plan. Now, I described a little bit of what a Christian or someone who would like to be a Christian because of benefits might think. Now I'd like to read an old essay, and I might have read it here once before, of what the real Christian life is. It's a, I have an abridged edition of an A.W. Tozer essay, The Old Cross and the New. Many of you might be familiar with it, but I think it might be very fitting here. What does it mean if you're going to be redeemed, if you're going to be a Christian, if there's responsibilities and there's loss and there's sacrifice, what, what, what is that? What, what does it include of? Well, I'm going to read here. 1960. Unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences, fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life. And from that new philosophy has come a new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting, and a new type of preaching. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same and its emphasis not as before. 
The old cross would have no truck with the world. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it is a friendly pal and, if understood aright, is the source of oceans of good, clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure. Only now he takes delight in singing choruses and watching religious movies instead of singing baldy songs and drinking hard liquor. The new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangelistic approach. The evangelist preaches not contrasts but similarities. He seeks to key into public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. It is false because it is blind. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for an abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise modified nothing, spared nothing, it slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to stay on or keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it was finished its work when it finished its work, the man was no more. The race of Adam is under death sentence. There is no commutation and no escape. God cannot approve of any of the fruits of sin, however innocent they may appear or beautiful to the eyes of men. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him up again to newness of life. That evangelism, that evangelism which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of man is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up to a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relation agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets, and our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. It stands always on the far side of the cross. Whoever would possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudicate himself and concur in God's just 
sentence against him. What does this mean to the individual? The condemned man who would find life in Christ Jesus? How can this theology be translated into life? Simply, he must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. Having done this, let him gaze with simple trust upon the risen Savior, and from him will come life and rebirth and cleansing and power. The cross that ended the earthly life of Jesus now puts an end to the sinner, and the power that raised Christ from the dead now raises him to a new life along with Christ. Dare we, the heirs of such a legacy of power, tamper with the truth? Dare we, with our stubby pencils, or our brilliant PowerPoints, or our contemporary music, alter the pattern shown to us on the mount? May God forbid. Let us preach the old cross, and we will know the old power. That essay was written during the time when there was a wholesale shift in the evangelical world with Billy Graham and that kind of people at the forefront of that movement. It was a new religious landscape, a time when the gospel was being watered down and then given to the masses. And A.W. Tozer saw it for what it was. It was an imitation. I wonder what kind of essay Tozer would write today. With the flood of grace books and ecumenicalism and the emerging church and contemporary music, I don't know. He's not here, but we are here. We need to understand also, we need to be in complete surrender to God and live and write, live and write the essays for our generation. The unnamed kinsman redeemer wanted the land, but he did not want the conditions attached to it. So he says, no, I'm not interested. You take it. It seems he wanted to save his family's heritage, his family's inheritance, his family's name. And now today we don't even know what his name was. His name is lost in history. He who loves his life shall lose it. That's what's happening right here. Illustration of that. Verse 7, now this was the manner in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said to Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. 
This was a legal transaction happening here. There were many witnesses, and they all heard the man say, I don't want it, you take it. They heard him say it. Now, somebody in this room will probably know, when you are listening to someone having given an essay, how, what percentage do you retain? It's pretty low. It's less than 10%. I'm sure it varies. Some of us retain more than others, let's say it that way. But it's low. But if you hear it and you see it, the retaining level goes up. And so, back then, when they didn't have documentation, they had witnesses. And so, in this environment, you might think, okay, years later, there's some old men sitting around. You say, do you remember that time back then when Boaz uh, took the land, of Elimelech's land and so on? And you remember that? Uh, what did he say? Did he say he would take it? Are you sure he did? And the other one said, yes, I know he did because I saw that man take his shoes off. And you'll remember it. I saw him take that shoe. It's a visible, a visible testimony of what happened. Did you really commit your life to Christ? You said you did. And there was some outward manifestation of it. And then you went to the baptismal waters with lots of people watching. And they heard you make those vows to God to serve him for the rest of your life. Your, your confession of forsaking the world and sin and your acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as the savior of your world. You put your trust in him and then you were baptized. And it's a visible, yes, that man is a Christian. He testified to it, and he demonstrated it by baptism. God uses ritual and objects and customs to help his people to receive and perpetuate truth. It's not the heart. The rituals are not the heart, but they are an aid to assist, and as such, they are important. Verse 9, And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malan's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malan, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. Boaz had gained the right to be the kinsman redeemer now. And then he states clearly you look at it, this is a very, very precise declaration of what he is doing and what his intentions are. He said, I'm buying that land and I am taking Ruth with it. 
with the explicit purpose to perpetuate the line of Elimelech. I'm not doing this for myself. I am availing myself. I am giving myself to salvage a family, a family in Israel. I am doing what the other kinsman was not willing to do. This is Boaz's equivalent to Ruth's commitment when she said, where you go, I will go. When she said that to Naomi, this is Boaz's equivalent to the same thing. It was purpose and commitment. Verse 11. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh, whom Tamar bore unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. All the people. I thought Boaz had just called ten elders. You ever on a highway, when there was a, a divided highway, like interstate or something like that, and there's an accident? And when there's an accident on those highways, there's usually one lane blocked, maybe more, and it's a traffic jam. But on the other side of the highway, there's no traffic jam. I mean, there's no, no lanes blocked, but there's also a traffic jam over there. What, why, why is that? It's a phenomenon that they call rubbernecking. Everybody goes past. And um, there was rubbernecking going here. People, there was... Something unusual happening. And if you are in a, in a village life where the village life was your life. I mean, we don't live in village life today. This is village life. Something unusual was happening. And there was a traffic jam in this gate this morning. Everybody wanted to see what's happening. They stopped their morning, normal morning routine to observe this unusual event. So all the people heard it and the elders and they recognized and they affirmed the deed and the sacrifice that Boaz made here. And they loved it. And they gave a blessing to Boaz right here. The elders and the people, I don't know how they did that, but they gave a specific blessing, a public blessing to Boaz and to Ruth. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and he called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. And so Ruth, the Moabitess woman, was the great-grandfather of the most famous king in Israel. A story with a happy ending. But the real happy ending, of course, is that there was a redeemer born in David's line. The real kinsman redeemer. The real victor. Ruth has the honor of being in lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe, maybe in the next message I might speak more on um, on the kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus. But right now, I would like to finish with a contrast between two contemporary people during the time of the judges. There were four Old Testament chapters devoted to Ruth. There are also four Old Testament chapters devoted to another man, Samson. It is likely that Samson was a contemporary or lived at the same time as Ruth's son, Obed. Ruth was born in Moab. That was a heathen culture. They worshipped the false god, Molech, which predominantly was a child-sacrificing god. The Moabites worshipped this god and they sacrificed their children. She was from an uncircumcised culture that is described by Paul in Ephesians 2. Paul describes the heathen. He said they are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and they are strangers from the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. They were spiritual and physical enemies of God's people. That's where, that's where Ruth was born. Samson, on the other hand, was born in Israel. And his birth was pre-announced by angels, by an angel. His father and mother were godly believers. Their to the angel clearly demonstrated that because when Manoah's knife, wife told him an angel had spoken to her Manoah wanted to talk to the angel too and he prayed that he would come so that they would know how to raise his child up and so Manoah's first words were how shall we raise this child they were, they were concerned about raising this child correctly the parents of Samson taught, were taught that their boy was to be dedicated to God from birth, never to drink wine or cut his hair or eat any unclean thing. And this, of course, the pattern of a Nazarite. He was to be a Nazarite. From his birth, Samson knew an ideal environment. And the Bible tells us that he grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. So he had a good beginning. So here we have Ruth, and here we have Samson. Which of these two do you think will have a likely happy ending? Well, Samson's promising start soon drifted into a disturbing pattern of life. Samson, for all his advantages, was a selfish and essential man. 
He was not motivated by a concern for God's people. In fact, the Lord had to use his passion for a Philistine woman to move Samson to act against his people's enemies. Talk about wrong motives. (laughs) That one would fit it. Samson was personally invulnerable. He possessed that supernatural physical strength, but his weakness was the domination of his own personality by the desires of the flesh. He was dominated by the desires of the flesh. Even in his death, Samson's primary motive seemed selfish. He prayed this, and let me get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. So Samson, the child of a godly home, dedicated to the Lord, lived for himself. Now he is in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. So there is somehow God, God did use him and work in his life. But he look at his life and say, what a tragedy. But Ruth, we had just heard her story. A Moabitess raised in heathen and then made that commitment. And we had just heard her happy ending. She is in the lineage of the most famous king and in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It is an affirmation that God is no respecter of persons. There are no teacher's pets. Are there, Eldon? Okay, no teacher's pets. Okay. There is no privileged class. There is no royal blood. As Romans 2, verses 9 to 11 says, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil unto the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. God is here. And we are here. To encourage and assist assist one another on the journey toward him and to do his will. We are here to encourage each other to a happy ending. We are here to prevent each other from tragic endings. We are here for each other. God is there. We are there. We are here. Neither of those endings happen by accident. So help us, Lord. Let's just pause for a word of prayer. Lord, again, we just come before you and thank you, Lord, for your word, which speaks so powerfully to us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to walk in your ways, in the old cross ways, Lord, in true surrender, in true yieldedness, and in true power in your name. Lord, give us wisdom to know the difference between the two. And Lord, we know that you do not give wisdom to one person alone, but you give it to your people, your body, and that we're here for each other. So I pray for each one of us here. Lord, statistics will say that there are some tragic endings here. But Lord, help us to be motivated 
to keep that from happening by your grace. Because that tragic ending could be any one of us. None exempted. And Lord, your glory also stands there. And so we pray, Lord, you receive glory from our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You turn this off and turn this on.